Welcome to the May 11th, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll report on the findings from a five-year follow-up study of axicabdigene silylucil in refractory large B-cell lymphoma. Discuss the role of C1 inhibitor deficiency in coagulation and venous thrombosis. And learn how chemotherapy signatures can be used to track the evolution of therapy-related myeloid neoplasms. We first examine data in the blood article entitled, Five-Year Follow-Up Supports Curative Potential of Axicabtogene Silylucil in Refractory Large B-Cell Lymphoma, Zuma 1, by Sattva Nilapu from the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center and colleagues. Chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapies targeting CD19 have significantly improved the outcomes of patients with multiple relapsed large B-cell lymphoma or LBCL. Axicabtogene silylucil, or Axicel, is an autologous CAR T-cell therapy approved for the treatment of relapsed or refractory LBCL after two or more lines of systemic therapy. Axicel's initial approval was based on the findings from the pivotal Zuma-1 trial conducted in a cohort of patients with refractory LBCL. 111 patients with LBCL were enrolled between May 19, 2015 and September 15, 2016. Patients underwent leukophoresis, followed by lymphodepleting chemotherapy with a combination of fludarabine, 30 mg per meter squared, and cyclophosphamide, 500 mg per meter squared per day, on days minus 5 through minus 3. On day 0, study subjects received a single intravenous infusion of Axicel at a target dose of 2 times 10 to the 6th CAR T-cells per kilogram of body weight. Investigator-assessed objective response rate, or ORR, served as the primary endpoint. Secondary endpoints included duration of response, progression-free survival, overall survival, the incidence of specific adverse events, and blood levels of CAR T-cells. Progression-free survival and overall survival were assessed at 3, 6, 12, and 24 months. As originally reported, Treatment with Axicel in the Zuma-1 trial resulted in an 83% objective response rate and a 58% complete response rate at a median follow-up of 27.1 months. 39% of patients were reported to have had an ongoing response, and the median overall survival was not yet reached. Compared to conventional chemotherapy, given in the scope of other clinical trials, treatment with Axicel was associated with a 73% reduction in the risk of death. In the current report, the authors report on the long-term efficacy and safety of Axicel in patients from the Zuma-1 trial after five years of follow-up, including the findings from exploratory analyses to assess the durability of response and long-term survival. These updated results from a reanalysis at five years demonstrate continued durability of response and long-term survival in patients with refractory LBCL. At five years, estimated OS was 43% among all treated patients and 64% among those achieving a CR. Importantly, the five-year disease-specific survival rate was 51%, 
supporting the curative potential of Axacel in a substantial proportion of patients. No new adverse events or deaths attributable to Axacel were observed during the five-year follow-up. Cytokine release syndrome occurred in 93% of patients, with 11% experiencing grade 3 or greater CRS. Neurologic adverse events were observed in 64% of patients, with 30% experiencing a grade 3 or higher neurologic event. Continued responses at 60 months were associated with early CAR T-cell expansion. Namely, patients with an ongoing response had almost double the concentration of CAR T-cells compared to patients who relapsed. 91% of patients who had an ongoing response three years post-infusion demonstrated polyclonal B-cell recovery and diversity with a median Ig-kappa-lambda ratio of 1.6. The authors concluded that the findings from this five-year follow-up support the curative potential of Axacel in a subset of patients with aggressive B-cell lymphomas. In an accompanying commentary, Hyatt Balkevant from the University Hospital Cologne in Cologne, Germany, notes that the findings outlined by Nilapu and colleagues are reassuring and confirm that the current and future efforts in the CAR T-cell field are paving the way to success for LBCL treatment. It is especially exciting to note that roughly one-third of patients with relapsed or refractory LBCL obtained a long-term response and that real-world studies conducted independently in both the United States and France confirmed initial response rates seen with Axicel in the Zuma-1 trial. Ongoing studies are evaluating Axicel as a first-line treatment for high-risk LBCL, and indications for use of this effective therapy are likely to expand in the future. Balkavant further notes that another interesting anti-CD19 CAR T-cell product, lysocaptogene marilusol, or lysocell, demonstrated comparable initial response rates as Axicel and is already approved as a second and third-line treatment of relapsed or refractory LBCL. He concludes that future studies should focus on more stringent and consistent molecular profiling of tumor samples, along with careful patient stratification and continued, in-depth CAR T-cell product characterization to help personalize CAR T-cell therapy for individual patients. Next up, we'll discuss the findings from the blood article entitled C1 Inhibitor Deficiency Enhances Contact Pathway-Mediated Activation of Coagulation and Venous Thrombosis by Stephen Grover from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in North Carolina and colleagues. C1 inhibitor is a serine protease inhibitor with important functions as an endogenous negative regulator of the complement pathway the contact pathway of coagulation, and the calocrine kinin pathway. Inherited mutations in the serping one gene, encoding C1 inhibitor, are the primary cause of hereditary angioedema, a rare disease characterized by recurrent, unpredictable, and potentially life-threatening episodes of swelling. In patients with C1 inhibitor deficiency-associated hereditary angioedema, Angioedema is driven by an uncontrolled generation of calocrine-mediated bradykinin. As noted, however, C1 inhibitor also inhibits excessive activation of the coagulation contact pathway by inhibiting activated clotting factors 11 and 12. 
Prior studies have found that patients with hereditary angioedema have increased levels of coagulation biomarkers, including prothrombin fragment 1 and 2, thrombin-antithrombin, or TAT, complexes, and D-dimer, compared to healthy controls. They also have shortened activated partial thromboplastin times. Furthermore, the authors recently reported an association between C1 inhibitor deficiency-associated hereditary angioedema and an increased risk of venous thromboembolism. In the current study, they report a series of experiments using patient plasma and C1 inhibitor-deficient mice to further evaluate the impact of C1 inhibitor deficiency on coagulation and thrombosis. Blood samples were obtained from patients with a confirmed diagnosis of C1 inhibitor deficiency-associated hereditary angioedema and from age and sex-matched healthy controls. C1 inhibitor antigen and C1 inhibitor activity in human plasma were determined using standardized assays. The levels of prothrombin fragments 1 and 2, TAT complexes, and C5A were measured in mouse plasma using commercial ELISA assays. Thrombin generation was assessed in both human and mouse plasma. Moreover, additional experiments were conducted in the murine inferior vena cava stenosis model, carotid artery ferric chloride model, and tail tip amputation bleeding model. When silica-induced contact activation was used to initiate clotting through the intrinsic pathway, thrombin generation was significantly increased in C1 inhibitor-deficient plasmas from patients with hereditary angioedema compared to plasmas from healthy controls. In contrast, upon supplementation with tissue factor, thrombin generation was similar in the plasmas of both healthy and affected individuals. Experiments in animals revealed that C1 inhibitor-deficient mice had significantly increased baseline circulating levels of prothrombin fragments 1 and 2, as well as thrombin-antithrombin complexes. Moreover, contact pathway-mediated thrombin generation was more pronounced in the whole blood of C1 inhibitor-deficient mice. In a mouse-inferior vena cava stenosis model, Mice lacking the C1 inhibitor developed significantly larger venous thrombi compared to wild-type mice. Interestingly, this difference disappeared when mice were treated with the human-derived C1 inhibitor. Finally, C1 inhibitor-deficient mice exhibited significantly enhanced venous, but not arterial, thrombus formation. The authors concluded that their findings suggest a key role for endogenous C1 inhibitor as a negative regulator of venous thrombus formation in mice. In line with the phenotype associated with C1 inhibitor deficiency-associated hereditary angioedema. In an accompanying commentary, David Gailani, from the Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee, notes that the study by Grover and colleagues convincingly demonstrates that C1 inhibitor deficiency is pro-coagulant in vitro and prothrombotic in a rodent model. However, the hypothesis that C1 inhibitor deficiency significantly increases the risk of venous thromboembolism in humans remains controversial, since it is in contrast to the clinical experience whereby patients with hereditary angioedema rarely have thrombotic events, despite having recurrent episodes of soft tissue edema due to hyperactivity of the plasma calocrine kinin system. 
Gailani notes that the therapeutic implications of these latest findings are not yet clear. He suggests that it may be reasonable to consider prophylactic anticoagulation when angioedema patients have illnesses or procedures that may precipitate attacks. Although long-term prophylaxis may be difficult with infusions of C1 inhibitor, newer agents with long half-lives, such as anti-factor 12A or anti-plasma calocrine antibodies, or chronic therapy with oral calocrine inhibitors could be viable options for reducing thrombotic risk. In the final part of today's podcast, we will review an article in Blood entitled Tracking the Evolution of Therapy-Related Myeloid Neoplasms Using Chemotherapy Signatures by Benjamin Diamond from the University of Miami in Florida and colleagues. Patients treated with cytotoxic therapies are at an increased risk of developing therapy-related myeloid neoplasms, or TMNs. In these patients, pre-leukemic clones, i.e. clonal hematopoiesis, CH, are typically detectable years before the development of these aggressive malignancies. Research to date has shown that DNA-damaging cytotoxic agents can alter the mutational profile of both healthy and cancer cells. Moreover, numerous studies have linked distinct mutational signatures to different chemotherapy drugs. For example, the mutational signature of cisplatinum is distinct from that of melphalan. Further, these specific drug-associated mutational signatures can often be detected in the hematopoietic cells in patients with TMN. Although TMN was described decades ago, the genomic events that give rise to clonal expansion and transformation remain poorly understood. One unresolved question is whether chemotherapy causes new driver mutations or if it simply selects for existing pre-leukemic clones. In the current study, the authors leveraged distinctive chemotherapy-induced mutational signatures and targeted sequencing of pre-chemotherapy samples to measure the genomic evolution of therapy-related clonal myeloid malignancies in 39 patients. Adult patients who developed TMN following exposure to chemotherapy regimens were identified from a database of records at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. 18 patients from MSKCC were eligible for whole genome sequencing, and an additional 22 TMN genomes from 21 patients, previously exposed to a variety of chemotherapy drugs, were imported from public databases for a total of 40 analyzed TMN genomes from 39 different patients. Whole genomes from 21 patients who developed de novo AML were used for comparison. The findings revealed that the mutational burden was significantly higher in platinum or melphalan-exposed TMNs compared to TMN developing in patients exposed to non-mutagenic chemotherapy drugs and typically included a high degree of structural abnormalities in the genome. Furthermore, all TMNs exposed to prior platinum-based therapy harbored a characteristic platinum mutational signature, consistent with a model in which one cell survived platinum-based DNA damage and expanded to clonal dominance. Conversely, only 41% of TMN exposed to prior melphalan-based therapy harbored the characteristic melphalan mutational signature. 
Interestingly, patients with a known chemotherapy signature had a high prevalence of copy number alterations and TP53 mutations compared to TMN cases without chemotherapy signatures. The authors then focused their attention on the subgroup of patients who developed TMN after treatment with high-dose melphalan and autologous stem cell transplantation, or ASCT, and proposed two models in patients with exposure to melphalan. In the first proposed model, chemotherapy directly selects for a hematopoietic clone by inducing mutations and by creating an environment that is permissive to the clonal expansion of this mutated precursor. In the second proposed model, a pre-existing hematopoietic clone is reintroduced by ASCT. This escape model is supported by several strong lines of evidence, including the finding that 8 out of 11 patients harbored pre-leukemic mutations before treatment with melphalan, or apheresis. Interestingly, both models involve the selection of a pre-existing clone by chemotherapy and not chemotherapy-induced direct acquisition of a new driver mutation. Taken together, the study findings reveal a novel model of TMN progression that is not dependent on direct mutagenesis or exposure to chemotherapy. For those TMN cases that evolved under the influence of chemotherapy, chemotherapy selected pre-existing hematopoietic clones and promoted the acquisition of recurrent genomic drivers. In an accompanying commentary, Yok Seng Lee and Peter Van Galen from Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts, note that one of the most innovative aspects of the study by Diamond and collaborators is the use of mutational signatures as temporal barcodes that permit dating of chromosomal gains relative to a specific mutagenic event in a patient's history. If a chemotherapy-related mutation was gained along with a chromosomal gain, then chemotherapy exposure preceded the gain and vice versa. Another important discovery is that chemotherapy can serve as a double-edged sword. Although the finding that it does not directly induce driver mutations may be a relief, chemotherapy exposure was found to select for TP53-mutated hematopoietic clones and facilitate subsequent clonal evolution. Lee and Van Galen note that future studies should clarify the mechanisms by which chemotherapy selects for mutations and facilitates clonal evolution. Additionally, a thorough assessment of the clinical utility of monitoring precursor genetic lesions to predict the risk of progression to disease is needed. Finally, this report by Diamond and collaborators demonstrates the great potential value of pairing computational genomics with clinical observations. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.